this morning. Open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're continuing our great study uh, through this book of Ephesians. And this morning, we're going to be looking at simply just one verse. It's going to be verse 25. So we're in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. If you're taking notes this morning, then uh, you have an outline there. And on the top of the outline is uh, the title for this morning's message, which is Lying Does Not Lessen the Pain. Lying does not lessen the pain. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll simply be in this one verse this morning and kind of springboard into this topic uh, in verse 25. Paul writes this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this one simple but profound verse that reminds us of the importance of putting away all falsehood, all forms of lying, and that we'd speak the truth to one another. God, help us to understand what this verse means so that we could live it out in our life day in and day out. God, we need your help this morning. I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and that your spirit would apply the truths of your word in our lives this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, four decades ago, a U.S. president was caught in a web of lies, deception, and cover-up. And this led to the Watergate scandal, which began on June the 17th, 1972. And the controversy had devastating effects on our country as a whole. And hopefully, the controversy in the NFL right now of deflate gate won't suffer the same consequences. But in the summer before President Richard Nixon's successful re-election to a second term, five men were caught breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters housed in the hotel named Watergate, located there in Washington, D.C., As details emerged over the next year, it became clear that those officials close to Nixon gave orders to the burglars, perhaps to plant wiretaps on the phones. The question soon became whether or not Nixon knew of, covered up, or even ordered himself the break-in to the Watergate Hotel. And so in response to mounting suspicions, Nixon denied allegations that he knew anything to do with it at all. In front of 400 Associated Press editors, he famously proclaimed, I am not a crook. He was talking about whether or not he had ever profited from public service, but that one quote really kind of came to represent his entire political career. It was a lie that came back to haunt him. When it was revealed that private White House conversations about the matter were recorded, the investigative committee subpoenaed the tapes. Nixon's refusal on the basis of executive privilege brought the matter to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled that he had to relinquish the tapes. So the tapes were exactly the smoking gun needed to implicate Nixon in the cover-up of the scandal. They revealed that he obviously knew much more about the matter than he ever claimed. Upon the initiation of the impeachment proceedings, Nixon gave up and resigned from office. The scandal left a lasting scar on American political uh, politics and helped usher 
into Washington, an outsider, Jimmy Carter, to the presidency a few years later. Well, Nixon's actions were a far cry from our first president's conviction to always speak the truth. There is, of course, the tale of the cherry tree, and I cannot tell a lie. I did it with my little hatchet, words supposedly spoken by George Washington. There was also our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, known as Honest Abe, who was revered for his faith and his honesty and him speaking the truth. Well, the question I want to ask you this morning is, why did President Nixon lie? Why do any of us lie, for that matter? Why do we lie? The answer is rather simple. It is to cover up the truth. That's why we lie. We want to cover something up. We want to hide something that really happened and portray it in a different way. Well, why should we cover up the truth, you might ask? Because we believe that telling the lie will lessen the pain of the truth. Somehow, we're deceived to thinking that if we lie about it, the pain will be less either for us or the person that we're lying to. But that, my friends, simply is not true. The truth is, God uses truth to resolve issues and to humble us and to heal us and to resolve our hurts through biblical forgiveness. A lie is what we use when we are so deceived that we think it's the only way out and it actually causes more pain and sorrow than you could ever know. A lie is a cheap substitute for the truth. A lie is a coward's way of telling what really happened. A lie is a belief that deceiving is better than delivering the reality of the situation. A lie is a tool in the devil's hand to undo your life. Every lie ever told undermines the truth of God's word, undercuts the trajectory of God's work, and underscores our need of a Savior who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're going to look and learn today about how lying does not really lessen the pain. Lying will only increase your hurt, augment your problem, and compound your guilt. Thank God that we do have a truth speaker that we can look to this morning, the person of Jesus Christ, who promises to rescue us from falsehood and to build in us faithful lives through the gospel. And so this morning, I want to simply give you three headings as we dive into this topic that lying does not lessen the pain. And we'll see it here in these three headings. The first one you have on your outline is I'm going to give you a negative command, which Paul issues here in this verse of putting away falsehood. So look back at verse 25, and we read again, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, here we are in the second part of Ephesians, learning about some of these imperatives of challenges that Paul gets of how we ought to live because we have a high position in Christ. And if we have a high position in Christ, we ought to be living out a holy 
conduct. And so in verses 1 through 16, he talks a little bit about the unity that we should have being one in Christ. And then last week, we turned the corner and started looking at verses 17 through 24 and talked about not only are we to walk in unity, as the first 16 verses talk about, but we're to walk in holiness, which is what verses 17 through the end of the chapter is all about. And so last week, we talked about what it means to put off and to put on. What it means to lay aside sinful actions and to replace them with biblical living. And in verses uh, 25 through 32, what we're looking at now, we begin to get into five specific sins that Paul says we need to put off and replace it with something else. And each one of these will demonstrate the change that has taken place from the old life to the new life. And so the five things we'll be looking at over the next five weeks are that believers need to change from lying to speaking the truth. And then you'll see there in verse 26 and 27, from unrighteous anger to righteous anger. The third one will be we need to move from stealing, in verse 28, to sharing. And then we'll be talking about how we need to move from unwholesome talk, in verse 29, to speech that edifies. And then we'll be looking at the last couple of verses of the chapter, moving from natural vices to supernatural virtues. In each of these, there is a negative command, then there is a positive command, And then there is an explanation of why. Why is it that we should be motivated to put off and to put on? And so the first one is right here where we are this morning in verse 25. And we might ask the question, the next click there maybe on the PowerPoint is simply this. Why start here with falsehood? Why why does Paul start when he's talking about all the things that he could discuss about you need to learn to put off and you need to put on? Why does he start with lying? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons why he may be starting here. Number one, the immediate context. The immediate context of this passage. Again, the beginning of verse uh, verse 25 says, therefore, this is a very strong inferential conjunction that could be translated as for this reason. So he's continuing to stack on his argument of we are not to live like the Gentiles, Verses 17 through 19. We're not, we're not to live like that anymore. We've been brought out of that Gentile way of thinking, which was futility. And we've been brought into a relationship with God because in verse 20, we've now learned Christ. And if we've learned Christ, assuming that we've been taught by him and we've heard him and we've been instructed by him, then, then we're going to be putting off and putting on. And so in verse 25, he's continuing to, to just build out some very specific ways we can apply verses 22 through 24, putting off and putting on. And so he's trying here to say, you, you got you to gotta put away. One thing you got to put away is this idea of lying or falsehood. To put away means to take off or to put aside, or to remove. Last week we talked about, like, if you were out working out, and you got hot and sweaty, or you're working in the yard, and you were covered with dirt and grime, and you would come into the house, and you would take off your old clothes, and you would discard them, and throw them into the dirty clothes hamper, take a shower, and then put on some new clothes, right? You wouldn't put on those same dirty clothes. You want to put them far from you, And so he's saying here that one of the things we got to put far from us in verse 25 is this word falsehood, falsehood. The word in the Greek is pseudos, which simply means a false utterance. It means to lie, or as it's translated here, falsehood. 
So we're going to see this morning, it goes a little bit beyond just telling a bold-faced lie. That's something that obviously it contains that meaning. But the idea of falsehood begins to widen just a little bit of this idea of any kind of deception. Any kind of something where you're trying to appear to be one thing, but you're really another. So the idea here is he's saying you've got to put that away. In fact, in the tense here, it's assumed that that's already happened. That if you're in Christ, you've already learned Christ, and you've heard him, and you've been taught in him, and it's just kind of assumed that that's no longer part of the normal behavior of your life. It's put in a tense, which makes it appear as if it's already done with. You've already done this. You've put it away from you. And so here in the immediate context, again, notice in verse uh, 21, we're talking about how we're assuming that you've heard, uh, heard him and taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So again, we're talking about why does he start with lying? Well, in verse 21, he talks about truth, which is in Christ. And then we see in verse 22 that we're to put off the old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So the word truth in 21, the word deceit in 22. In verse 23, we're supposed to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And then in verse 24, he talks about how as we put on this new self, it's created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we clearly see that in this immediate context, the word truth is obviously on Paul's mind. He's already kind of set the table for it to say, hey, we got we to gotta be speaking the truth. We got to be watching out for deception. We have to, to be careful that we don't become corrupt. We want to speak the truth. We want to have true righteousness and true holiness. And so part of the reason he starts with the word lying or falsehood is because of the immediate context. A second reason, while it may be that Paul chooses to start here, is just the fact that God, number two, God does not lie. If you're going to start with putting off and putting on, maybe we should start with looking at the characteristics of God. And how true is it that God does not lie? In fact, hold your place there in Ephesians and turn with me to Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23. Let me give you just a couple of verses as you turn there that would just bolster this obvious truth that God is not a liar. And we could even say that you are never more like God than when you are telling the truth. And so in Numbers chapter 23, we read in verse 19, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it, or has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? So in other words, even in this verse, if you look in the beginning of verse 19, he's saying one of the differences between God and man is this assumed that man's going to lie. At some point, man's going to make a promise that he's not going to be able to keep, but God is not that way. God is not man. Therefore, he's not going to lie. A man may tell you something but change his mind, but God's not like that. What he says, he will do. And so we understand from the Old Testament, there's many other passages, but that one there in in Numbers will suffice, is that God does not lie. In fact, turn now to the New Testament, if you will, to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, just to the right of Ephesians, a couple of books. And in Titus chapter 1 and verse 1, we read this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And so we see Titus here, as, as Paul writes uh, to Titus, is talking about God's truth and the fact in verse 2, in which God, who never lies. It's just a fact that you've got to know from God's word. 
God does not lie. And in fact, in Hebrews, turn over now, if you will, to a little bit more to the right, to Hebrews chapter 6, and look at verses 17 and 18. We read this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so we see that not only does God not lie, according to verse 18, it's impossible. He cannot contradict himself. He is filled with truth and with holiness. God will not tell a lie. He cannot tell a lie. He has never lied, and in fact, it's impossible for him to lie. And so maybe Paul starts here with this immediate context of as opposition to deceit and to untruths. He wants to talk about truth, and of course, we're reminded that God is truth. In fact, if you, if you look at the, at the first part of the next chapter, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And so we, we've read here about how God does not lie. It's impossible for him to lie. We, we're supposed to imitate God. We're supposed to imitate the holiness of God by those things that are said about God being also said about us if we're walking in Christ. So another reason why lying is talked about first is, is that it deceived, it was, it was lying is what deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. We could say it this way, number three, the first lie ever told. Sin entered the world through a lie. Sin entered the world through Satan who had already fallen from heaven, but now he comes to Eve in the garden. And in Genesis chapter 3, we read about the first lie ever told. Now the serpent was made more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Here's the lie. Satan is already on slippery ground. Did God really say? But then in verse four, he says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You see, God said, if if you eat of the fruit, you will die. Satan comes in with his lie and says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, there's another lie. First, he says, you're not going to die. Secondly, he says, if you eat it, instead of becoming a sinner, which is what happened to Adam and Eve, he tells them they'll actually become more like God and be able to recognize the difference between good and evil. And then in verse 6, so that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's her believing the lie, she took of its fruit and ate and she, was also, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so here we see that lying was the tool in the devil's hand. It was the first attempt to bring down mankind through the deception of his own lying. That was the first lie ever told. So maybe that's why Paul starts here, just trying to address, hey, we got to start off with understanding we can't be this way. We need to be those who speak the truth. Or number four, couldn't we just say all sin is a lie? Couldn't we say that in one sense that lying or falsehood would encompass the entire category of sin altogether? Isn't it safe to say that any sin we commit is a falsehood? 
It's a lie to who we are if we're in Christ. If we're in Christ, we claim to love him. We claim to be a disciple of him. And so any lie or falsehood that we're involved in is a lie. It's a lie that maybe we're believing. Maybe we're believing in that moment of temptation that somehow this sin will satisfy us. Satan is still whispering out his same lies. And if you just take a little bit, it's not going to be that big of a deal. And so we believe the lie and we think maybe that when we commit that sin, it will satisfy. But sin never satisfies. Anytime we sin, we're living a lie. So we say we love Christ, but in that moment, we're not showing love for Christ, but rather spitting upon what Christ died for in the sense of we don't care anymore about truth, but we just want to be left to ourselves. Well, those are just some thoughts about why Paul started with this idea of lying. But let me move on this morning to discuss with you three types of lies. Three types of lies. You see it there in your outline. Number one, let's talk about the white lie. The white lie. And this is certainly uh, an example given to us here in Genesis chapter 18. So turn there with me if you can. You guys all know what a white lie is, but I want you to see at least one biblical example of it here in Genesis chapter 18 with Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Genesis chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Notice this is when the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. And then we read here in verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, if you've not been tracking with Genesis, she's a little bit older, like about 90 Right? Abraham's about 100, and so he's saying, hey, about this time next year, your wife is going to have a son. And so Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of, of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So in other words, she's no longer fertile. It's, it's just as candid as I can say it. So she's thinking there's just no way this is really going to happen. Verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I, uh, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no. But you did laugh. Okay, so here's a narrative just showing an example of a white lie in Scripture. Even a white lie is evidence that you don't trust God. You see, if you trust God, if you have an obedient heart, not even a white lie would ever be told. Can you imagine telling a white lie as Sarah did to the Lord himself, knowing good and well that she had laughed, and yet for some reason to her it was important. It seemed like a silly thing, but it was just important for her to say, I did not laugh. And the Lord said, no, but you did laugh. And it, it is a, a conviction that we should gather in our hearts as we read a passage like that and realize, you know what, I too am guilty of telling white lies, things that seem not to really hurt anybody. The idea behind white lie, the connotation would be like, it's not a bad lie, like it's not a black lie. That would be a really bad lie. It's just kind of a white lie. It's not a big deal. I just don't want someone to know because I want to cover it up because it doesn't really matter and mean a whole lot anyway. You know, we're trying to teach our kids about white lies. Sometimes as we try to put them to bed at night, uh, some of them brush their teeth on their own. Others still need a little assistance. And so sometimes I'll be like, hey, did you brush your teeth? Yeah, dad, I brushed my teeth. All right, let's go to bed. Wait a second. Let me smell your breath. Come here. 
Come here, let me smell your breath. And sometimes we'll catch them. You know, that, that, you know I, can't, I don't think you brushed your teeth, big guy. Come on, let's come back in here. But at some point, you have to address that. Like, it's not funny. Like, to, to act like it's not a big deal is believing a deception. Or maybe you're in grade school or you're in high school, and, and the question comes up, uh, did you do your homework? Maybe your mom or dad are asking you, hey, did you, did you do your homework? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I've already done my homework. And it's a lie. Because you think it's not a big deal, I'll kind of work around it, I'll get my homework done before bedtime, so if I just tell them now, that way I can get mom off my back. It's a white lie, or college students, maybe you're tempted to say, well sure I was at chapel, sure I was there, or you know, I, I, I was at class, or maybe you too said, yeah I did all the reading, but you really didn't. Or maybe, you know, a parent is here and, and, and you struggle with the same thing, lying to your spouse because you don't want to get into another argument about that same thing. And so you twist the truth and you tell a white lie and you think that it's not a big deal. Well, I just want to remind you this morning that the Lord knows that a white lie is a falsehood and it does have consequences. It doesn't honor God and it as trivial as it seems to be in your own mind, is a sin. The second type of lie that we see in the Bible would be a half-truth. Right? You knew we were going there. It's kind of like a white lie, but maybe just a little bit more bold, where you tell half the truth, but half the truth you purposely don't tell or you leave out. In fact, you might still be there in Genesis. Turn to chapter 20, and we see this again in, in Genesis. Uh, Abraham and Sarah maybe played off each other a little bit here because we see that as much as we admire the patriarch Abraham, he was certainly far from perfect. And so here in Genesis chapter 20, uh, we see that Abraham tells a half-truth to Abimelech. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at very... At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. 
So what are we reading about here? This interesting account of the fact that Abraham told a, a, a half lie and had his wife tell a half lie. Was, were, were they brother and sister? Well, apparently, yes, with the same father, but not with the same mother. Abraham feared for his life. He thought Abimelech would have him killed. And so Abraham was not trusting God. Is this a bad thing to kind of tell a half lie to save your life? Well, according to Abimelech, he said, what is this great sin that you have done? So telling a half-truth is just as bad as telling a non-truth. Yet somehow we rationalize that it's okay for us to, to tell this, this half-truth. Maybe, maybe the kids would say, well, I did clean up my room. Where they just cleaned a portion of it, but not all of it. Or, or maybe you're hanging out with some friends, and you get home, and mom and dad say, hey, what did you guys do tonight? And you say, well, we just did this, this, and this, but you didn't tell them. What, what really happened, that maybe there was a movie that was watched or that was playing that you know they won't approve of, but you just kind of left that out. Or maybe you're a college student and you're heading home and, and, and uh, you re- give the reason that you're late is because you had to stop and get gas. Is that true? Well, sure, maybe you had to stop and get gas, but that may not be the real reason why you're as late as you are. You know, maybe for me, I might struggle and Lisa might come, come home and say, hey, I was out at women's uh, gathering tonight. What have you been doing? Honey, I've been... I've been cleaning the house and, and uh, playing with the kids. And, well, really, I've been watching, like, Monday Night Football for 90% of that time. You know, it's a half-truth, or that would be a 90% untruth, right? I mean, the idea is a half-truth is a lie. It does not honor God. Or how about, number three, a bold-faced lie? Just a plain-out bold-faced lie. Maybe no better example than Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Right? Acts chapter 5, such a great example of an in-your-face kind of lie that these two committed against the Holy Spirit. And so as people were coming to Christ and giving of their, of their own possessions, we read here in verse 5, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And it was after it was sold, it was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all those who heard it. So they end up going out and burying him. They call his wife in. She tells the same lie. She dies and is buried next to her husband. I mean, we all know that telling a uh, bold-faced lie is wrong. It's a sin. It could cost you your education if you're lying in something relating to a school matter. It could cost you your job. It, It could cost you your marriage. It could cost your life. And so the idea is that Paul is very serious when he's diving into this in verse 25, like, hey, you got to put this aside. I, I don't know what kind of lying you might be struggling with, a white lie or a half-truth or a bold-faced lie, but Paul is saying this has got to be put away from us. In fact, as I was studying this week, I just became so intrigued by all the passages in the Bible, uh, not only in those narrative accounts that I read, just about lying. And so I came up with this list that I'll just, we'll just look at quickly here, 10 truths about a lie that I just found really challenging in my own heart as I was studying this passage. Here they are. Just we'll have to go through it quickly. But number one, Satan is the father of lies. 
You want to know a truth about a lie? It didn't originally stem from you. According to the Bible, Satan's the father of it to some degree. John 8, 44, you are of your father, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So in a sense, anytime you lie, at least temporarily, you're following in the footsteps of the devil. Number two, a lie exchanges God's truth for the world's pleasures. Romans 1.25, because they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. We've been in that passage the last couple of weeks and talked about how that led really to their futility and it led to their sensuality and it led to God giving them over to their own lust because a lie is exchanging God's truth for the world's pleasures. Number three, lying puts you in good company with the Antichrist. Is that where you want to hang out? Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse nine, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and all power and false signs and wonders. Again, the word pseudos, they're translated as false, referring to the signs and wonders that the end of Christ would do in the end, that it would really be a lie. And so if you're into deceiving, it puts you in good company with the Antichrist. Number four, it is a lie to deny that Jesus is the Christ. First John Chapter 2, 21 and 22, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So in a sense, for any person on the planet who denies that Jesus Christ is God's son, that he is divine, that he is the only savior of our sin, the Bible says for that one who would deny that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that that person is a liar. Number five, the anointing of God in your life is true, not a lie. Now, this idea of anointing of God is true of all believers. It's a reference to 1 John 2, 26 and 27. Every believer has the anointing because we have the Holy Spirit that lives in us. That passage reads like this. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you abide in him. So he's encouraging the believers not to listen to the false teachers who were claiming they had special revelation from God and Christ. Rather, he's saying, no, 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 you have the Holy Spirit in you, and that's the truth, not a lie. And so the anointing of God in your life is God's truth, it is not a lie. Number six, even if everyone else's life is a lie, God's truth still stands. Romans chapter three, Paul's giving this argument about some Jews who did not really represent the holiness of God's character. Romans 3, 1 through 4, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So the idea is that even the Jews at times would not be a good witness to what they were called for, 
But is it true that because some of them were unfaithful that God is unfaithful? And so the answer is absolutely not. Their faithlessness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. By no means let God be true, though everyone is a liar. So the idea is ultimately God is the representation of truth, though people will tell lies. Number seven, if you deny your sinful nature, you are a liar. If you think that maybe you've never sinned, then you're a liar. According to 1 John 1.10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so in a sense, we're, we're calling God a liar if we deny the fact that we've never sinned. Therefore, we're in need of a savior. Or number eight, if you say you love Christ but don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. How, how do we know that we are in him? That we keep God's commandments. And if we're not keeping his commandments, even though we say, I know him, the Bible tells us that we're a liar. Number nine, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you are a liar. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. You can't say that you love God, but you hate the person that God created. That doesn't work. And so if that's what we're saying, then we are lying. And in number 10, and probably the strongest one maybe of all, liars go to hell. Very clearly in Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So we see in all these passages that lying is wrong, that lying is a sin. All forms of falsehood are a lie. We're commanded to stop doing it, to put it off, and to replace it with something better. So this is where we transition into what it is that we are to do, the positive command given there again in Ephesians chapter 4, 25. You're to put away falsehood. Let each one of you instead, the idea is, right, speak the truth with his neighbor. And so the positive command is put on the truth. And we could say this, your next blank there, speaking the truth is speaking Christ. Every time we speak truth, we're modeling the person of Christ. How about John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so one of the things we got to do is, is if we're going to not be a part of this deception and this false truth, this half-truth, then we want to be speaking truth. We want to be speaking Christ. We want to be representing Christ. We want to be speaking in ways that would honor him. Or next, we see this under B, speaking the truth is speaking the words of sanctification. So not only are we speaking Christ, but in John 17, 17, we read, sanctify them in the truth. And so the idea there is when we speak the truth, that's part of our sanctification. We're building each other up. We're helping each other believe the truth, live the truth, love with the truth. That's the sanctification that God's called us to. And so when we're speaking the truth in every way, in, in, in every situation, we're speaking words that would sanctify or see there in your outline, speaking the truth is speaking the word of God. Again, there in John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. 
And so every time you're speaking the truth, as opposed to telling a lie or a falsehood, in a sense, you're speaking the very word of God. D, speaking the truth will set you free. Now, this passage uh, in John 8, 31, 32 is familiar to us. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What I'm trying to argue maybe from this passage would be if you know the truth, certainly you're going to be speaking the truth. Knowing the truth isn't this idea that you have this secret knowledge that you just keep within. And so I'm, I'm paralleling that if you know something, certainly you're going to be speaking about it. It's going to be part of who you are. And so if you're speaking the truth by knowing the truth, that's what's going to set you free. And this really dives into the heart of the matter that we think that if I tell a lie, somehow that will lessen the pain where God actually wants to use that precarious situation, that difficult encounter, instead of protecting yourself by telling the lie that you in that very moment, even if it's embarrassing, even if it's shameful, what you did or what you said is in that very moment that if you speak the truth, you'll find freedom as you confess your sin and seek reconciliation. But if you tell a lie, you'll continue in your deception. Maybe just to be really practical with these last three would just be this. Speaking the truth is about being honest. I mean, at the base motive of what this is about is is just being honest all the time. Let's say, for example, that my wife and I are going to head out on a a date. It's Friday night. We've got date night. We hop in the car. I didn't do a good job planning our evening like I should have, maybe. But we're hopping the car. We're riding down the road. And uh, I'm like, hey, hon, where where do you want to eat tonight? And she's like, well, I... I don't care, wherever you want to eat, dear. And I'm like, no, seriously, honey, I, I get to eat out with things with the ministry and this and that. Where do you want to go? Oh, honestly, honey, whatever you're in the mood for, I'm just happy to spend the evening with you. And so I'm thinking, well, man, that's pretty sweet. I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of hungry for a steak, like a real steak. So I think maybe we're going to head to Wood Ranch because they got the best steak in Santa Clarita. And so I'm going to head to Wood Ranch and I'm all excited. I'm thinking about the steak I'm going to order. So we pull up. We, we, we wait to be seated. We have our seat. I order this huge steak, and my wife orders like a side salad. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of odd. And then I've kind of started to notice that she's really not been talking so much to me over the last few minutes. And I start to wonder, well, what's going on? We're hanging out. We're at a nice restaurant. Steak's on the way. What's up? And I say, honey, what's going on? And she says to me, well, you know what? I don't, I don't really like Wood Ranch. I, 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 wanted, I wanted to go to Olive Garden. And you know that Olive Garden is my favorite restaurant because they have these nice dishes of different, uh, pronounced uh, with different letters, typically that end in a vowel. And that was really what I was in the mood for tonight. Then, you know, part of this problem, you ever been there? Okay. Part of this is I should have known better, right? But part of it is couldn't we improve our communication by being honest at the very beginning instead of not being honest and really having a strong desire, or maybe we could flip that because I just made my wife look bad. She's not here for service. I have to change that for second service. But, uh, but the idea is, you know, may, maybe I get home from work and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm upset about something that happened at work. Maybe it's something that was going on here at the church. So I get home, I'm a little uptight, and Lisa says, is everything okay? Everything's fine. You know, well, am I really being honest? So the idea is, is that part of speaking the truth starts with being utterly 
honest about what's going on. But we've got to be careful because F says speaking the truth is the first step in biblical communication. So the idea is we want to speak the truth, but we want to make sure the way we speak the truth is going to be helpful. But certainly we could say a lot of times people come in for counseling, right? And they're saying, hey, we're really dealing with trouble with communication. This is the first step. In communication, I mean, obviously you're not going to tell a bold-faced lie. Or if you do, we've got to work through that, right? But part of the problem is couples get caught just not really saying what they really feel at that moment. And so if you want to grow in communication, the first step is to be really, really honest. Or we could go to G here. Being really honest, however, doesn't mean that, that, that you're going to be brutally honest. Okay? There's the flip side of that. I just encourage you to be honest, but you want to be careful. I mean, what if your wife puts on a dress and says, does this dress make me look fat? What if she says, do you see any wrinkles on my face? Or what if she were to say to you, do you like how much I weigh? Oh, man, that's, what, what are you going to answer? So the idea is, let's say, and those are bad questions again. I have to change these. But what, what if these questions came out in your conversation and you said, well, I got to speak. I got to be honest. Yeah, honey, that dress makes you. Uh-uh. No, you, you want to think of a way to say, you know what, honey, I, I think there's other dress I like better. Right? Is that fair? I mean, there's ways that you could be honest and that you could be tactful without being brutally honest to affirm something in such a negative way. So this all has to do, again, with speaking the truth. You don't have to, to lie, but you can think of a way to say something that has an edifying effect instead of saying something that would tear somebody down. Okay, so I'm trying to give some really theological principles about lying, some really practical principles. They all work together, but look at number three here if we can. We've got to move on to wrap things up. The rationale is that it's because we belong to each other. I mean, the reason that we want to be careful not to tell these falsehoods or live these falsehoods and to speak the truth and communicate honestly and caringly to each other is because we belong to one another. And we don't have time to read the passage, but you know it already. 1 Corinthians 12, 14, all the way uh, down to 27 talks about, hey, the body of Christ, we all belong to each other. You have the eye and the ear and the foot. But if you don't start working together and the, and the eye starts to lie to the foot by saying, hey, you can just walk straight right here. You don't have to step up. Then all of a sudden the foot's going to, you know, slam into the step or, 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 you know, so the idea is like the body can't send out signals that lie to each other and you still function as a body with good health. In fact, lying would lead to dysfunction. That's your next blank. If you're, the members of your body are lying to each other, then the body's going to be dysfunctional. And how much more true is that in a real sense that if we're lying to one another in the church or in your marriage or in your biological family or in your spiritual family, then it will become dysfunctional for us. Lying also leads to pain, leads to pain. I mean, if your sensory uh, nerves don't tell you when you touch the stove that it's hot, then eventually your, your fingers are going to be burned off. Right, right. So you have to have this correct communication about what's going on. Why, again, what's the rationale? Because we ought to be speaking the truth with his neighbor. Neighbor, in one sense, could be thought of anybody. But in this sense, it says, for we are members of one another, seems to be including here the idea of the neighbors of those who are in Christ, because we're actually a member. And throughout the book of Ephesians, there's a lot of talk about the body of Christ. And so we ought to speak the truth to anybody, whether they're in Christ or not. But it's almost like especially those who are in the body, because we belong to each other. And if, if, we, if we don't speak the truth, it leads to dysfunction. It leads to pain. Lastly, lying leads to death. 
I mean, it leads to death. We've already read it in Revelation 21.8. There's eternal suffering in hell for those who are characterized as liars. And the body will eventually die. Like this church will not make it if we have habitual liars in leadership or on any level. Because a body can't function if we're not speaking the truth all to one another. Which is why we want to speak the truth. And as we've already mentioned here in this chapter, we want to learn to do that in love. We want to always speak the truth and do it in love because of God's great love for us that our speech would be seasoned with salt, that it would be wholesome, even as we'll get to in verse 29, to put off that corrupt talk, but only that kind of speech that would build each other up. And so as we head home today, maybe we could think about a couple of these questions at the end that are, are you really speaking the truth at work? Maybe you need to be challenged this day about how true you're really being at work. Have you got Have you fallen into some bad habits of giving white lies or being a little deceptive about the job that you're doing or the clock that you're punching? Are you speaking the truth with your words and actions at work? How about number two, are you speaking the truth at church? Are you being honest about what was said and what needs to be said, even when it's difficult, even when it's going to be challenging, even when you're embarrassed about maybe your own faults and you try to cover it up a little bit so you don't look so bad? Are you speaking the truth as we interact with one another here at our church? And then lastly, and maybe most convictingly, if you're honest with yourself, are you speaking the truth at home? Is your relationship between husband and wife, brother and sister, child and parent, are you regularly speaking the truth to one another? Because the truth is oh so good. Here's the truth this day is that lying will increase the pain. It's actually speaking the truth that will lessen the pain in your life. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning and look at such a clear subject in the Bible, a subject that Maybe on the surface, we don't think we struggle with. But as we're honest with ourselves and examine these scriptures in our hearts, we know that we have great opportunity to grow this morning. And so I pray, God, that we would be known as a truth-speaking church on every level, whether it be an elder meeting or a deacon meeting or a small group gathering or a ministry of any kind, that we would speak the truth. I pray, God, that at work we would represent the truth I pray at home, God, that you would allow us to be truthful with one another. God, we want to get rid of those dirty clothes, of the habits of different kinds of falsehood. We want to speak the truth of Christ, to speak the truth of your word, to speak the truth that would point others to true healing, and that speaking the truth would truly lessen the pain. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.